The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. you from now until noon no no not right wing just right fade into color color into black and white under the bed clothes everything will be alright and welcome to the show today and uh, we're actually broadcasting this week from our not-regular studio, since the regular studio is undergoing all sorts of upgrades and repairs. So if you're hearing some f funny things going on here and there in the radio, that is the reason. And uh, was last week, too, so we're not quite sure when we're going to get back into our regular studio. But 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And what we'll be talking about today, generally is, uh, it was funny, the theme that, that came out when I was working on this, it seems to be almost, I would call it, bad defenses for noble causes and everything from CO2 to basic economic arguments and even scientific arguments. So uh, today, and, then, and near the end of the show, if we get time and everything's okay, I want to do some, change the whole tone and, and do some follow-ups on some old TV shows that I had recommended way back in February let you know how they worked out and whether I liked them or not, and plus maybe another show or two I might recommend for you to check out if you're still watching that old uh, tube thing called a television set. But um, to get on with the show today, you know, um, you heard Woody Allen there at the opening uh, said, uh, basically, life is terrible, but it's such small proportions and <laughs> it's all over too much quickly, or too quickly. That, of course, was from the movie Annie Hall. But uh, not exactly the best defense for uh, for life, is it? You know, like, life sucks, but it's over too quick. And, you know, it, it's really funny. I was thinking about this. If you speak of, of life and our time on this earth, you know, we could take a little breath for a bit of perspective. I had this conversation with someone the other day, and it kind of hit us. Uh, consider this. It has been only... 20 to 25 lifetimes, now I'm talking about lifetimes, not generations, since the days of the Roman Empire and the birth of Christianity, believe it or not. Been many generations, and of course generations overlap up to five in a, in a lifetime, and a full lifetime now averages around 80 years today. There's over a million people in North America that are over 100 years old, so you could have, uh, you know, if you're talking at that level, of that length of a lifetime, we're only talking 20 lifetimes since the time of Christ. So if we thought in terms of lifetimes instead of generations, the past might not seem so distant. And our expectations of what's possible in terms of man's progress on this planet might take on a little more realistic perspective and maybe not be quite as depressing as Woody Allen might let on. 20 to 25 lifetimes ago, the Roman Empire was in decline and Christians were being fed to the lions. Only three or so lifetimes ago, 
lifetimes again, humanity began to discover the principles of freedom and of capitalism, and the world saw an explosion of knowledge and science and an increase in the standard of living basically unheralded in all of man's previous history combined, at least our known and written history. And the pursuit of happiness as a virtuous end in itself became a value in society for the first time. Um, resistance to this positive development has been eternal and is now making a concerted effort to undo the incredible enlightenment that has been the consequence basically of man's discovery of reality and reason and how to determine each and you know arrive at the proper conclusions. Now at the forefront of this endarkenment movement I would call it is, is the green movement. This movement is entirely leftist in origin and in ideology. Two weeks ago, on this show, I exposed London's municipal anti-idling bylaw as a fraudulent green propaganda campaign being paid for through health care dollars, and had just begun attacking the very notion of CO2 being a problem when a caller phoned in to take me to task for dismissing uh, the bylaw and CO2. Now, the caller's uh, very unreal, I have to say, and irrelevant argument was a complete distraction from the central question being discussed, but was supported by quote-unquote scientific studies, which she revealed could be found on David Suzuki's site. Yes, cars use oxygen. Cars do exhale pollutants. All true, but nothing to do with the bylaws, which, as I have been repeatedly demonstrating, force us to increase pollution. And there's a very scientific reason for that as well. And um, I was also taken to task by another listener um, off-air for my comment that CO2 is not a quote-unquote greenhouse gas, though he agreed uh, that it was certainly not a pollutant. Now, technically it's true, CO2 is a greenhouse gas by definition. However, and I'm going to get into this in much more detail a little later on, it does not produce any greenhouse effects as predicted by global warming theorists. Methane and water vapor are greenhouse gases, with water vapor being the major one, and yet even this does not account for any purported global increases or decreases in temperature. And even all of this, you know, we could talk about this all the time, still it's, it's a distraction from the real cause of the whole global warming debate. Not, not global warming, but the debate. And that is the global, explicitly written, anti-capitalist effort undertaken by the United Nations and individual nations in their process of expanding the role of the state. And thus, in the process, destroying both freedom and capitalism. It's not global warming that needs to be explained. It's the weirdness and the irrationality of those supporting non-sequitur solutions to a non-existent problem. That's what needs to be attacked. And, you know, I have not seen a single, quote-unquote, logical or right-wing response to the issue ever addresses the cause. And I think that's why they are always losing. I've dealt with this uh, in detail on past shows, but for the moment, let's actually review um, some of the essentials of the global warming debate itself, irrespective of the motivations behind each side. Now... I will refer to an excellent refutation of the global warming theories, but must warn you that this argument makes many of the same errors that defenders of capitalism make and, and people make even in science. You can make powerful factual arguments about any issue, but uh, you might be surprised that these arguments are never very convincing. And in fact, you might find your opponents are even more convinced that they're right and you are wrong. So I was hoping to clear up just a few of the, the uh, side issue misconceptions, shall we say. 
And with that, I wanted to thank uh, listener Glenn for f sending me uh, a PDF copy of, and I, you can get it from this website, Joannova, J-O-A-N-N-E-N-O-V-A dot com dot A-U, obviously an Australian site. And, of course, Australia signed on to Kyoto, and, and they've had a few reconsiderations about whole, the whole global warming thing over the past years. And one of the reasons might be this document, which is called the Skeptic's Handbook, um, and it's all about global warming. Now, it's interesting, uh, this person defines skeptic as a person indisposed to accept popularity or authority as proving the truth of opinions. Um, the, the person described, that's a good thing. You don't want to be, uh, you know, we call that in, in philosophy, that's social metaphysics. You get your sense of reality from other people. You don't check it out yourself. But I, I don't agree that that's the definition of skeptic. I looked it up in the dictionary. It says one who doubts disbeliever or disagrees with uh, generally accepted ideas, one who by nature doubts or questions what he hears, reads, etc. Now, that might sound good on the surface, but if you're always doubting and disagreeing with what is generally accepted, just because of that, I mean, it might be true, couldn't it? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the bottom line? So I think you want to have some element of reality in there, but you never see these things coming coming up. However, on the issue of global warming and CO2, this thing is just an excellent uh, um, summary. And basically, it starts on the first page. Says the bottom line is simple. And the real question, the only question that matters, is whether adding more CO2 to the atmosphere will make the world much warmer. Everything that the politicians have been using to justify hinges on that question. After all, if carbon dioxide is not the significant cause, then all the cap-and-trade stuff and carbon sequestration and all the Kyoto agreements are just a waste of time and money. End of story. So basically, they're suggesting that there are only a few points that matter. And basically, there's four points, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, they, you know, they, they certainly encourage people to ask questions. Always a good idea. Good distinction made here. Greenhouse and global warming are different. Don't let people confuse global warming with greenhouse gases. Proof of global warming is not proof that greenhouse gases caused the warming. So you have to ask for evidence. And they suggest if you're met with dismissive, intimidatory, or bullying behavior, don't ignore it. Ask them why they're not willing to explain their case. And... Um, of course, they point out, too, which is just good to know, that the words carbon, carbon dioxide, and CO2 are all used rather interchangeably for simplicity's sake but, uh, and for the public, but scientists themselves do make distinctions between those things. Now, on shows past, I've pointed out, you know, there's been more research done on global warming in the past 10 years than there have been in all the years combined before, which is when they came to a lot of these agreements. And some of the things they've certainly found over the past little while, and this is under their headings, the four, only four points that matter, is the biggie is that the greenhouse signature is missing. There's absolutely no sign of the telltale, quote, hot spot warming pattern that greenhouse gases would, le would leave. They also point out that uh, second point for the last half a million years, temperatures have gone up before carbon dioxide levels, on average 800 years before. And they point out that uh, satellites circling the planet twice a day show that the world has not warmed since 2001. In fact, it's been going down. And here's an interesting thing about carbon dioxide you should know. It has basically done all the warming it could possibly do. Adding twice the CO2 does not make twice a difference. The first CO2 molecules matter a lot, but extra ones have less and less effect. 
In fact, carbon levels were 10 times as high in the past, but the world still slipped into an ice age. So clearly carbon today is a bit player, according to what they're saying in this document. So I went into the document further, and they go into a lot of details uh, of each of the points I raised, um, you know, over a page and a half, basically, on each one, and I won't go into that. Um, but they have a good page here that says, what is evidence? And they, says, they say, well, this would be evidence, and they give two points. One, if temperatures followed CO2 levels in the past, and they didn't, and two, if the atmosphere showed the characteristic heating pattern of increased greenhouse warming, and it does not. But here's what they stress, and they say, this is not evidence. And they list the following. Arctic ice disappearing, glaciers retreating, coral reef bleaching, Mount Kilimanjaro losing snow, Madagascan lemurs doing anything, <laughs> four polar bears caught in a storm, pick a bird, tree, moth facing extinction, a change in cyclones, a hurricanes and typhoons, droughts, dry rivers, computer mo models. Some guy with a PhD is quote-unquote sure. 2,500 scientists mostly agree. Government spending on emissions trading plans tops $100 million. And a failed theologian, ex-politician, uh, made a documentary. <laughs> so those are not pieces of evidence. And, uh, you know, some people ask, well, how can so many scientists be so wrong? And they respond, well, they're not wrong. They're just studying, they're not such studying the central question either. Instead, they're researching the effects of warming, not the causes. And consensus proves nothing. It takes only one scientist to prove a theory wrong. Which side has more PhDs is, uh, you know, not a better question than where is the evidence. And, of course, the biggie is that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. That's just not true. Carbon dioxide, as they say, quote, feeds plants. It's a potent fertilizer. We can thank the extra CO2 in our atmosphere for increasing plant growth by about 15% over the last century. And, uh, you know, they talk about how uh, the crop yields go up, and it's uh, obviously life and oxygen is all part of a chain. You can't separate it all. And, uh, of course, they dismiss the, the, the precautionary principle. Interesting, uh, you know, if you hear the argument that carbon dioxide is at record levels, it is true it's higher now than it has been in a long time, but if you were to go back 500 million years and carbon levels were not just 10 or 20 percent higher, they were 10 to 20 times higher. And uh, the Earth slipped into an ice age while CO2 was far higher. So um, whatever you know, they say the effects of CO2 is, it has nothing to do with the whole global warming debate. So there's just an example of, um, you know, if you get into this whole debate, you're dealing with non-essentials. <laughs> it's not what the issue's about. The issue's political, and that's where it belongs. So here's, we're going to take a quick break for a smile now, and here's uh, talk about some comedy based on uh, dealing with non-essentials, ignoring the elephant in the room, let us say. So let's take a break for a smile, and when we come back, we will continue about getting it right. Montreal seems a friendly place. Seems I live in London now, you see. London's not a very friendly place if you're Welsh, you know. It's not. I've lived there ten years. Ten years I've lived in London. I, I haven't met anyone yet. <laughs> I haven't spoken to anyone. I haven't made any friends. I've stalked a few people. I don't know if we have any stalkers in, but I don't even enjoy it. I don't like stalking. Your life's not your own when you're stalking people. Just once, this is going to sound silly to you, but just once, just once, in the whole time I've been stalking people, it would just be nice if we could do what I wanted to do. 
always got to fit around them, haven't you? I'm sick of it. If you think about, if you are thinking about stalking somebody, if anybody there is thinking about stalking somebody, choose who you stalk very carefully. That's my advice. Choose who you stalk. Very, there's a lot of strange people out there. I've stalked some right weirdos. In fact, if you are going to stalk somebody, you've got somebody in mind. You've chosen your person. My advice, follow them for a few months first. <laughs> Just on a trial basis. See if you're compatible. See if you've got the same interests. There's nothing worse, take my word for it, there's nothing worse than stalking somebody when you've got nothing in common. It's true, you call them up in the middle of the night, it's awkward silences. No, no, no. I haven't got time. Well, I've give got... it back then. No, 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 I just paid you. What? Yeah. This bloke won't haggle. Won't haggle? All right. Do we have to? Now, look, I want 20 for that. Uh, I just gave you 20. Now, are you telling me that's not worth 20 shekels? No. Look at it. Feel the quality. That's not in your goat. All right, I'll give you 19 then. No, no, no. Come on, do it properly. What? Haggle properly. This isn't worth 19. You just said it was worth 20. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Come on, haggle. All right, I'll give you 10. That's more like it. Ten? Are you trying to insult me? Me with a poor dying grandmother? Ten? All right, I'll give you eleven. Now you're getting it. Eleven? Did I hear you right? Eleven? This cost me twelve? You want to ruin me? Seventeen? No, 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 no. Seventeen. Eighteen? No, no, you get a fourteen now. All right, I'll give you fourteen. Fourteen? Are you joking? That's what you told me to say. Oh, dear. Oh, tell me what to say, please. Offer me fourteen. I'll give you fourteen. He's offering me fourteen for this. Fifteen. Seventeen. My last word. I won't take a penny less or strike me dead. Sixteen. Done. Asked to do business with you. Oh. Tell you what, I'll throw you in this as well. I don't want it, but thanks. Bert? Oh. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Now, where's the sixteen you owe me? I just gave you twenty. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's four I owe you, then. No, that's right, that's fine, that's fine. No, hang on, I've got it here somewhere. That's right, that's four for the gourd. Four? For this gourd? Four? Look at it. It's worth ten if it's worth a shekel. You just gave it to me for nothing. Yes, but it's worth ten. All right, all right. Disappointments and disillusions with the government's... They see it now with Harper, especially right-wing conservatives. Now, you might think that'd be bad enough, but it even gets weirder because conservatives sort of don't learn from their experience, and so they get very bitter, and there's anger and frustration and a lot of cynicism about politics. And uh, often I find myself the victim of their uh, criticisms rather than what they're actually fighting. They think that maybe they would have done better if I had helped them out. So it doesn't work that way. Freedom works on a very strict set of principles that have to be followed. And it's basically reality, reason, self, and consent, which are sort of the four guideposts that I use um, to guide myself towards discovering what is true and what is right in terms of freedom. Now, this next, uh, we're going to be taking a break here for uh, just a couple of clips here and for some ads. 
And what you're about to hear is uh, Milton Friedman from his Free to Choose series back in 1979-80 when it was actually shot. And uh, here again, I agree with everything Milton Friedman is saying. There's nothing, nothing factually incorrect, and it's a very good description of the benefits of capitalism. But I would not call it a proper defense of capitalism. So you'll be hearing Milton Friedman on the way out of this break and then again on the way coming back in, and I'll explain what I mean when we come back on the other side. Adam Smith's flash of genius was to see how prices that emerged in the market the prices of goods, the wages of labor, and the cost of transport could coordinate the activities of millions of independent people, strangers to one another, without anybody telling them what to do. His key idea was that self-interest could produce an orderly society benefiting everybody. It was as though there were an invisible hand at work. The invisible hand is a phrase that was introduced by Adam Smith in his great book, The Wealth of Nations, in which he uh, uh, talked about the way in which individuals who intended only to pursue their own interests were led by an invisible hand to promote the public welfare, which was no part of their intention. He, ta he was talking about the economic market, about the market in which people buy and sell, and he was pointing out that in order for a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker to make an income, he had to produce something that somebody wanted to buy. And therefore, in the process of promoting his own interests, of looking to his own profit, he ended up serving the interests of his customers. Often than not, a free market is not permitted to operate. For reasons that seem to make sense if you don't examine them carefully, governments insist on interfering. But when they do, it's not possible to hide the harmful effects for very long. The main reason why the Japanese yen went up so sharply in price in 1977 and 1978 was because the Japanese government had been trying to prevent the yen from going up in price. In the process, what might have been small disturbances were allowed to accumulate into a major gap in trade. As a result, when market forces finally were permitted to operate, as sooner or later they must be, it took a major change in the yen exchange rate to bring things back into line. Why don't governments learn? Because governments never learn. Only people learn. And the people who learn today may not be the people in charge of economic policy tomorrow. As you contemplate this, you may come to agree with me that what we need are constitutional restraints on the power of government to interfere with free markets. HRW 94.9 FM, and we'll be with you from now till noon. Now, I agreed with everything that I just heard Milton Friedman say there in terms of the facts and the arguments and the effects and the consequences. And uh, certainly Adam Smith's, you know, 
talked about how prices would coordinate the activities of total strangers in a marketplace without anybody even having to know each other. He talked about how individuals promote the public welfare by acting in their self-interest. And, of course, this is only true, as uh, Taff here pointed out to me during the break, if people are acting rationally, of course. And you're getting ahead of the game here, Taff. You've got to be careful there. I told him he's listened to this show too much, but he says, no, he's taking political science, and they actually talk about that there. <laughs> so, um, but think about it this way. If you're um, justifying capitalism because it promotes the, the government or the public welfare... Well, some people are using that same justification, the public welfare, for justifying all sorts of social programs, which are contrary to the public welfare, if you were looking at the bigger picture. And you could say it's for the public welfare that we have a whole program that, that robs Peter to pay Paul, but it doesn't work that way. And, of course, Milton Friedman says that free markets were not permitted to operate for reasons that seem to make sense until you examine them carefully. Now, of course, he gets into the gaps in trade, yen exchange rate, why governments never learn, but doesn't really get into the examination of the reasons that people are using to promote these things. And this is why, you know, there, he, he's dealing basically with all data and pragmatism and not morality and principles. And the issue, of course, is that um, when you look at, carefully at the reasons behind why we're having these battles in the first place, it's because there are a group of people who are not concerned with the facts, not concerned with a reality or with logic. They have a, an objective they want, and generally it's something for nothing. And let's face it, self-interest exists in socialist and communist states as well as in free market economies. And, uh, so, and it is not inevitable that markets will ultimately, ultimately rule. That depends on the rule of law and a whole set of other external issues that allow the market to flourish. And that's why, um, just, just gives you an example of how sometimes the, that's not the best argument, and that's why the argument's losing, because somebody else just has to come along and say, well, I've got a better idea for the public welfare, and look at how great, how many people this is helping, and you can demonstrate it too, because government's got a very visible hand and never looks at the invisible side of its own equation. They can show you the factory that they're building and the jobs they're creating, but they'll never show you the people that are being put out of work on the other side of the teeter-totter there from which they're taking all the wealth. And, you know, I call this caveman logic, which is pretty uh, a good phrase, especially since uh, there was... Uh, now, this is a little bit of a, of a side issue, but talk speaks to the same theme. And it all comes down to... You know, even the scientific uh, elite among us are not that educated sometimes. And, and here's a perfect example. National Post, June 27th, uh, by Mary Vallis and Guelph in a Saturday interview. And it's called A Caveman's Logic. And it speaks, and I'll quote here, University of Guelph evolutionary psychologist Hank Davis in his new book, Caveman Logic, The Persistence of Primitive Thinking in a Modern World argues that, quote-unquote, caveman logic that helped our ancestors survive the Pleistocene age is keeping our species from realizing its true potential. While we are well past the primitive age, he argues, we happily shroud ourselves in superstition, magic, and blind faith, rather than burn the extra mental calories it takes to think critically and reach rational conclusions. And I'm thinking at this point, wow, this is great. And he goes on. Our Pleistocene era brains, he says, are hardwired to behave this way. 
we have to try to recognize these patterns of superstition and act to avoid them. That's not always easy. Patterns are everything to us. We revel in them. They are the basis for art, literature, music, and much more in our daily lives. Our problem is not with the adequacy of the cognitive mechanisms we have inherited. It is with the inability to turn them off, he writes. And I'm thinking you want to turn off the cognitive mechanisms. So unless that's a misprint, he's saying we have to, what, stop thinking? I don't know what he's actually saying there. And it's interesting he said that he was lucky to stumble into his theory as well, which, which the author of <laughs> work that way. Freedom works on a very strict set of principles that have to be followed. And it's basically reality, reason, self, and consent, which are sort of the four guideposts that I use um, to guide myself towards discovering what is true and what is right in terms of freedom. Now, this next, uh, we're going to be taking a break here for uh, just a couple of clips here and for some ads. And what you're about to hear is uh, Milton Friedman from his Free to Choose series back in 1979-80 when it was actually shot. And uh, here again, I agree with everything Milton Friedman is saying. There's nothing, nothing factually incorrect, and it's a very good description of the benefits of capitalism. But I would not call it a proper defense of capitalism. So you'll be hearing Milton Friedman on the way out of this break and then again on the way coming back in, and I'll explain what I mean when we come back on the other side. Adam Smith's flash of genius was to see how prices that emerged in the market, the prices of goods, the wages of labor, and the cost of transport, could coordinate the activities of millions of independent people, strangers to one another, without anybody telling them what to do. His key idea was that self-interest could produce an orderly society benefiting everybody. It was as though there were an invisible hand at work. The invisible hand is a phrase that was introduced by Adam Smith in his great book, The Wealth of Nations, in which he uh, uh, talked about the way in which individuals who intended only to pursue their own interests were led by an invisible hand to promote the public welfare, which was no part of their intention. He, ta he was talking about the economic market, about the market in which people buy and sell, and he was pointing out that in order for a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker to make an income, he had to produce something that somebody wanted to buy. And therefore, in the process of promoting his own interests, of looking to his own profit, he ended up serving the interests of his customers. On Monday, July 20th, keep your radio tuned into CHRW as we grace the airwaves for our 10th annual All Gay All Day. This colorful day of programming in support of Pride London Festival will feature tons of interviews, musicians, and information about Pride events. All shows will be playing all gay artists all day. 94.9 CHRW, proud all year long. You're listening to 94.9 CHRW, owned and operated by the University Students' Council. Broadcasting live from the UCC building, room 250 at UWO London. For more information, log on to chrwradio.com. Greetings, this is Barry Woody, host and producer of Jazz for Sunday Night. Just a quick reminder to you to listen, discover, and enjoy the world of jazz every Sunday night between 8 and 10 p.m. with me here on London's volunteer-powered station for jazz, 94.9 CHRW. 
The problem is that more often than not, a free market is not permitted to operate. For reasons that seem to make sense if you don't examine them carefully, governments insist on interfering. But when they do, it's not possible to hide the harmful effects for very long. The main reason why the Japanese yen went up so sharply in price in 1977 and 1978 was because the Japanese government had been trying to prevent the yen from going up in price. In the process, what might have been small disturbances were allowed to accumulate into a major gap in trade. As a result, when market forces finally were permitted to operate, as sooner or later they must be, it took a major change in the yen exchange rate to bring things back into line. Why don't governments learn? Because governments never learn. Only people learn. And the people who learn today may not be the people in charge of economic policy tomorrow. As you contemplate this, you may come to agree with me that what we need are constitutional restraints on the power of government to interfere with free markets. HRW 94.9 FM, and we'll be with you from now till noon. Now, I agreed with everything that I just heard Milton Friedman say there in terms of the facts and the arguments and the effects and the consequences. And uh, certainly Adam Smith's, you know, talked about how prices would coordinate the activities of total strangers in a marketplace without anybody even having to know each other. He talked about how individuals promote the public welfare by acting in their self-interest. And, of course, this is only true, as uh, Taff here pointed out to me during the break, if people are acting rationally, of course. And you're getting ahead of the game here, Taff. You've got to be careful there. told him he's listened to this show too much, but he says, no, he's taking political science, and they actually talk about that there. <laughs> so, um, but think about it this way. If you're um, justifying capitalism because it promotes the, the government or the public welfare... Well, some people are using that same justification, the public welfare, for justifying all sorts of social programs, which are contrary to the public welfare if you were looking at the bigger picture. And you could say it's for the public welfare that we have a whole program that, that robs Peter to pay Paul, but it doesn't work that way. And, of course, Milton Friedman says that free markets were not permitted to operate for reasons that seem to make sense until you examine them carefully. Now, of course, he gets into the gaps in trade, yen exchange rate, why governments never learn, but doesn't really get into the examination of the reasons that people are using to promote these things. And this is why, you know, there, he's dealing basically with all data and pragmatism and not morality and principles. And the issue, of course, is that um, when you look at carefully at the reasons behind why we're having these battles in the first place, it's because there are a group of people who are not concerned with the facts, not concerned with reality or with logic. They have a, an objective they want, and generally it's something for nothing. And let's face it, self-interest exists in socialist and communist states as well as in free market economies. And, uh, so, and it is not inevitable that markets will ultimately, ultimately rule. That depends on the rule of law and a whole set of other external issues that allow the market to flourish. And that's why, um, just, just gives you an example of how sometimes the, that's not the best argument, and that's why the argument's losing, because somebody else just has to come along and say, well, I've got a better idea for the public welfare, and look at how great, how many people this is helping. And you can demonstrate it, too, because government's got a very visible hand 
and never looks at the invisible side of its own equation. They can show you the factory that they're building and the jobs they're creating, but they'll never show you the people that are being put out of work on the other side of the teeter-totter there from which they're taking all the wealth. And, you know, I call this caveman logic, which is pretty uh, a good phrase, especially since uh, there was... Uh, now, this is a little bit of a, of a side issue, but talk speaks to the same theme. And it all comes down to, you know, even the scientific uh, elite among us are not that educated sometimes. And, and here's a perfect example. National Post, June 27th, uh, by Mary Vallis and Guelph in the Saturday interview, and it's called A Caveman's Logic, and it speaks, and I'll quote here, University of Guelph evolutionary psychologist Hank Davis in his new book, Caveman Logic, The Persistence of Primitive Thinking in a Modern World, argues that, quote-unquote, caveman logic that helped our ancestors survive the Pleistocene age is keeping our species from realizing its true potential. While we are well past the primitive age, he argues, we happily shroud ourselves in superstition, magic, and blind faith, rather than burn the extra mental calories it takes to think critically and reach rational conclusions. And I'm thinking at this point, wow, this is great. And he goes on. Our Pleistocene era brains, he says, are hardwired to behave this way. We have to try to recognize these patterns of superstition and act to avoid them. That's not always easy. Patterns are everything to us. We revel in them. They are the basis for art, literature, music, and much more in our daily lives. Our problem is not with the adequacy of the cognitive mechanisms we have inherited. It is with the inability to turn them off, he writes. And I'm thinking he wants to turn off the cognitive mechanisms. So unless that's a misprint, he's saying we have to... What, stop thinking? I don't know what he's actually saying there. And it's interesting he said that he was lucky to stumble into his theory as well, which, which the author of the article noticed. But, uh, and to carry on here, quote, Much of Davis's academic career has been devoted to understanding animal cognition and the bond between humans and animals. He has published studies about the ability of rats, scallops, and hissing cockroaches. Part of the problem with our brains, he writes, is a causal detection error, end quote, that leads us to wrongly believe that our behavior has more of an effect on our environment than it actually, than it actually does. Such superstitious behavior has been observed in everything from pigeons to rats to people, Professor Davis writes. Now, note the word observed as opposed to understood. Observation is not thinking. And I can't see how anybody could say that rats and pigeons behave superstitiously. <laughs> How can a person who's got a Ph.D. be able to write something like that? Then he says, I would be more optimistic about our species' chances for survival if pseudoscience, organized religion, and a host of other delusions were voluntarily taken off the table, says Professor Davis and atheists, proving, I suppose, that atheists, too, can be out of touch with reality. And he says, we need to see our defective Stone Age minds for what they are if we're ever to hope to drag ourselves into the 21st century. Our bodies seem to be standing up rather well. It's our minds that are slipping into obsolescence. We name our daughters Faith and Hope. We never name them Doubt or Skeptic, Professor Davis says. Those are not valued traits, and I believe they should be, end quote. And there you have it, a complete what I would call an epistemological disaster literally mindless conclusions about the mind. The irony and the tragedy and the sheer outrageousness of Professor Davis's theory is that he himself is, is Exhibit A. <laughs> um, studying, or 
I guess rather observing rats, scallops, and hissing cockroaches is no way to understand the human mind. Why not just flip a coin? And this is the kind of irrationality that passes for science today. And a capitalist society cannot survive with that kind of science. And you hear about the National Post writing about it all the time, junk science. Which is why I now turn to Dr. Leonard Peikoff, who in 1993 seemed to have already written a response to this very thing. And this was in, uh, in uh, the chapter called Capitalism in the book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand by Leonard Peikoff. Now, I've really severely um, done some Reader's Digest kind of editing here to get to the main point that he's trying to make. And perhaps that I'm trying to make, too. So this is Dr. Peikoff, and he's responding both to this and to our previous theme. And he speaks, quote, Capitalism is perishing from the absence of a rational philosophy. This absence alone explains why the abundance of economic answers offered to our century by a better past has been ignored by the world and will go on being ignored. In other words, the Milton Friedman arguments are great, but they will not make a convincing case. Under capitalism, state and economics are separated, just as state and church are separated, and for the same reasons. The term laissez-faire capitalism is a redundancy. Capitalism is the system of laissez-faire. The difference between economic power and political power is the difference between purchase and plunder, between trade and theft. Economic power is exercised by means of a positive, a reward, an incentive, a value. Political power is exercised by a negative, by the threat of punishment, injury, destruction. The first appeals to motivation by love, the second to motivation by fear. These latter, by the way, are the uh, education programs our governments are undertaking to impose irrational green behavior on the rest of us. But I digress. So argues Mr. Peikoff, he says, From Adam Smith to the present, the value standard upheld by capitalism's champion champions has been the public good. As a rule, the defenders of capitalism have been worse, more openly irrational than its attackers. Herbert Spencer, the system's leading 19th century champion, held that capitalism permits only the, quote, survival of the fittest, end quote. This is the conclusion Spencer reached by attempting to, de to deduce capitalism from the intellectual fad of the period, Darwin's theory of evolution. Since animals survive by fighting over a limited food supply, Spencer argued, in essence, so does man. This defense of laissez-faire has been incomparably more harmful than anything ever uttered by Marx, says Peikoff. And, of course, the, because, of course, it, it evades the fact that when man is free, he's a producer and he creates his own food supply. He doesn't go around shooting people for, for food. Now, continues Peikoff, the opposition to capitalism is, in essence, philosophical. The deepest root of politics, however, is not morality, but its root. And by that he means morality's root, which is epistemology combined with metaphysics, or the simple way to say it, reality and reason. The opposition to capitalism often involves an element of evasion, but often it does not. The opponents are sincere. They are, one must say, quote-unquote, honestly stupid, end quote. And it is a self-made, epistemologically induced stupidity. Intellectuals of this kind are deaf to facts, though unfortunately never dumb. Who can talk to mentalities like these? They cannot be convinced by a process of logic because they have no inkling of the nature of the process. Thanks to the epistemology they practice and probably preach, they are not open to reason. 
Just as capitalists, if they are to succeed in their financial goal, must function on the conceptual level of consciousness with everything this implies, so must the defenders of capitalism if they are to succeed in their intellectual goal. In fact, that, that statement there refers to the two types of capitalists I, I once mentioned on the show. There's the capitalist who's in business, that type of capitalist, and then there's a capitalist who defends a system on a philosophical ground. Unfortunately, in reality, a lot of the business people capitalists are often not capitalists. They're socialists when it comes to their political beliefs, but that, that again, is another side issue. But concludes uh, Peacock, he says, without a proper epistemology, men do not use their minds properly, and their political conclusions are correspondingly worthless. And again, this applies to the science as well as Professor Davis's observation that he just made. You know, he says it's our minds that are, are slipping into obsolescence, quote-unquote, which can only happen when the mind's epistemology, its programming, its software, that's what really that is, is not anchored to reality and reason. And says Peikoff, this is why the intellectuals have never grasped the virtue of capitalism. They did not grasp it a century ago, and they are worse and factually more ignorant today. In every branch of the social sciences now, our intellectuals are literal know-nothings, especially in the field of their own specialization because of the kind of philosophy their years of academic training have instilled in them. Man needs a philosophy to enable him to reach an integrated understanding of facts and a rational standard of evaluation. Without a proper philosophy, therefore, facts galore can be available, but men will not be able to grasp, connect, estimate or learn from them. I'm speaking here not only of corrupt intellectuals, but also of plain, decent men. The battle for the world is not a battle between two political ideals. It is a battle between two views on the nature of thought. Since rights are the means of subordinating society to moral law, capitalism is the only moral social system. The virtue of rationality involves both a process of consciousness and a corresponding course of physical action. Capitalism is practical. Capitalism is moral. Capitalism is true. But men will never know it until they understand that these three concepts, along with everything on which they hierarchically depend, if men are ever to reach a world where man is free, free not by permission, but on principle, they must first enact the cause of freedom. They must first grasp and accept the intellectual base that it requires. A free mind is the corollary of a free market. And that's a very interesting statement to make, too. And, uh, but that's not the order in which Leonard Peikoff wrote all this, uh, um, but they're all his words. I just put them in a different order to make the point of what I wanted to focus on today. Now, uh, we're going to take a break here now shortly, and then we're going to come back and change the subject entirely. But just before you do, you're going to hear a little uh, clip from a national... Um, education workshop 1955 it was produced and it was from uh, an old black and white film called a look at capitalism which talks about private property and home ownership and when we return on the other side going to switch the subject entirely tell you about a few television shows I've watched lately had recommended what happened to them and a couple others I might suggest to you for future viewing we'll be back after this consider for instance home ownership which is a bright American goal for most of our people. The desire to own one's own home, one's own property, provides a real incentive for almost all Americans to bring out their most productive efforts. In the American system, what's yours is yours. What you do with it is your business. You can squander it away or you can work harder and produce more and have more. 
The principle of the private ownership of property is the number one target of the socialist and communist. They believe in government ownership and control. Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto wrote, the theory of the communist may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. He loves himself. Can you take that back to briefing, please? Did we hear back from the lab? Yeah, seems negative for DNA imprints, just like Fisk. Guy's careful. What about Tisdale and Fisk? Any connection? Other than your boy there? No. What's he doing here? Maybe he likes you. Detective Beckett. <laughs> Captain? Yes, sir. Mr. Castle's offered to assist with the investigation. It's the least I can do for the city I love. Considering the nature of the crime scenes, I think it's a good idea. Sir, can I talk to you for a minute in private? Nope. Yeah, that's from the show, TV show Castle, which had uh, gone through its first season, and I understand is going to make it to its second season. One of the four shows that I reviewed way back, I think, I'm guessing around February, March-ish, if you check it out on the site, um, which, by the way, is www.justrightmedia.org, where you can get all the back archives of the show. Now, back on that last show, which has been quite a while since I've talked about in TV shows, I did a sort of a recommendation of four shows that I was just getting into at the time. Um, each of them had something to do with the previous Firefly series, and that was that they either had an actor or a director or something associated with them. And that was basically uh, Terminator, Chuck, Dollhouse, and Castle, the thing we just heard. And uh, so I remember saying back then, I forget what the date was, but I, I remember saying, you know, don't quote me on this because I don't know how long these shows are going to last and they might not be there the week after. Who knows what's going to happen? All of them, amazingly, made it to the end of their seasons. And out of the four, as far as I can tell, just checking here, um, yeah, only one has been uh, terminated, unfortunately, and that was The Terminator, which I just thought was an excellent series. Um, I actually took time to watch this series in a run, and uh, I think they had two seasons, and it exceeded my expectations rather consistently, and each show seemed to just get better. And it had a great ending, second season, so it's not like you're going to be left hanging with a cliffhanger, although they could have continued with a third the way at, the, at the point it, uh, it ended. But um, I have to think that that show had to be fairly expensive to make, and I don't know how much the previous writer's strike may have affected it, but uh, the shows were well-written, well-acted. Um, I was sad to see that one go because I was just getting into it. But then I'm getting used to that experience. Another show... Uh, that I, I recommended was, uh, of course, the, the show Chuck, and uh, which I said, that's a fun ride. It's, um, it's a bit of a silly show. It's like a, almost a takeoff on a James Bondish kind of stuff with high tech and computers, a little bit of sci-fi and, and fantasy mixed in with it. And it's something that I, at the time, said, you know, even my grandson likes this show. Now, I heard um, at first that uh, the show was canceled, which kind of blew me away. Near the end of the second season there, they were bringing in some big stars, including a lot of Star Trek 
um, personalities who'd been on Star Trek and uh, obviously trying to affect the ratings near the end of that second season. And then out came the rumor that they were being canceled, and then there was a big fan drive to save the show and that kind of thing. Now, the latest I've heard is that the show will be coming back uh, for a third season, but uh, when that is and where, when it'll come, I can't really say. Now, um, the show that really uh, interested me at the time, too, was a totally new piece of work by John, or Josh, Josh Whedon called Dollhouse that was introduced back in February. And it came out on Friday nights, which kind of put it in the condemned and doomed spot for uh, any kind of television series trying to make it. And uh, a very, very different show. I don't know if you remember me doing this one. Um, my major reaction to it was at the time, I'd only seen one or two episodes, I couldn't say good or bad. I just said, well, that was very interesting. You know, what an interesting show. Um, so I kept coming back for more. And... Uh, well, I got to tell you, interesting eventually turned into fascinating, and then it became compelling. As I began to realize, I was being taken on a totally different kind of television experience. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's one in which the characters you're following may not be in a particular actor's body at any given point in time, if you can get your head around that. And it would take a little bit too long to explain, but it's done well in the show. And the show becomes a very uh, cerebral experience over and above what's going on in the action and what you see on the screen. And the realization kind of creeps up on you, cr on you slowly. And, uh, but the show ended its first season with more twists and turns in 15 minutes than, than you'd see in most entire episodes of a show. And, um, but I do understand the show has been renewed for a second season. Don't know whether Joss Whedon has broken his Friday night uh, slot curse, but uh, we can stay tuned for a second season on this show whenever that might be. Uh, certainly a different kind of experience, and I really don't know how anybody ever tuning in to, say, the sixth or seventh episode of this, uh, and that, again, is a show, Dollhouse, would ever even know what it was about, because <laughs> you really have to follow the logic, and, and it builds. Each episode builds on the next. Now, the other, uh, probably the one that was bit the biggest hit out of this, at least from what I've heard, is, of course, Castle with Nathan Fillion, formerly from Firefly. Uh, a basic mystery show, and as I said on the show, I, I don't consider this the best of the shows, but I just knew it was going to be popular because mystery shows are popular. They've been done to death, pardon the pun, but um, it's just one of those genres, as I say, that people never get tired of. And uh, this show's a little bit like Murder, She Wrote, or, or should be called Murder, He Wrote, in a way. And um, I can see the appeal, okay? It's, it's gently done. It's not a hard-hitting kind of thing, and it has a definite appeal to a broader audience. And, uh, but what I found very quickly, I liked the, I liked the first episode, and then I found the rest uh, remained rather formulaic. They kept following the... Uh, the same formula over and over again and and while it was entertaining i mean between the characters and stuff and that's what you really watch these kinds of shows for um it just didn't have uh, the depth and substance that a lot of shows do but nevertheless i would still call it an entertaining relaxing kind of show and i, I can see why the appeals there and that's pretty well what i expected from it turned out to be the case and in fact uh, apparently they are renewed for a second season and um, I think they're in reruns now on a channel if I'm not incorrect on that now one thing I didn't expect uh, was, uh, you know I sort of uh, just take shots at when I see a debut or a premiere of a show coming along and I was watching some of the the, the summer shows that were coming out 
So what I do is I just set my VCR and I, and I take a shot at them and see if any of them turn out to be worth watching. And the really big surprise for me turned out to be actually my favorite summer show. And it's, again, not a genre that I'm necessarily into. I would put this in the cop show genre, generally. And it's a show called The Unusuals. And I don't know how to explain this show, but it does live up to its name. If I were to try to describe it for you, I would, if you've got any familiarity with these, I would say maybe take a bit of Barney Miller, if you remember that show, mix in M.A.S.H., add, a, add the pace of Chuck, maybe a touch of Joss Whedon-like type of humor, and you've got an unusual cop show. And that's, uh, you know, that was my favorite summer treat so far. Certainly uh, was a show that lives up to its name. Um, it's got an ensemble cast, and I don't know all the actors, and I don't even remember all the characters' names, but I do know that I liked all the characters, at least in the sense um, that I could relate to them, even if I didn't you know, approve of their particular character traits. But uh, you certainly can empathize with each of the characters, and, and you really don't know what's going on in this show. There's a bigger story behind it, of course. And, um, of course, there's a lot of, uh, to use an expression I just used, quote-unquote, caveman thinking going on in this show, which provides some of the humor. But generally, reason, honesty, and objectivity are the values that prevail in this show. And I was quite surprised by some of the things that happened. And um, I give this show two thumbs up. It's really unusual. It's, uh, without being stupidly outrageous and unbelievable, they don't do anything that goes over the line of total believability, but they get pretty darn close to it, and uh, you can see certainly in some of the cases that they take on why they call it uh, the unusual. In fact, I think the first case in the first episode was about a catnapper, and uh, they had to trap this catnapper and kind of cure him of his disease, and uh, that was an interesting thing to watch just in and of itself. Well, we're out of time for today, and uh, that's where I leave it for today. So there's a show I recommend, and I still recommend the other four if you can get any copies of them or get, the, get them passed. Certainly check out the new, the new seasons as they come up. And uh, so I guess that's what we're going to leave you with today. So I hope next week you'll join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. We'll see you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So I get into the accident, right? How can you get into the accident? Even if it's not your fault, the other person gets out of their car and looks at you like it's your fault. They get out like... Why do you stop at a red light and let me hit you doing 80? <laughs> Why?